0: The following is a sermon preached at the First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi. Good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And as you turn, let me say what a joy and a privilege it is to be able to preach God's Word to you this morning. Uh, I bring greetings from the saints at Pear Orchard Presbyterian Church. Uh, It is hard to believe that it's been 20 years since I was an intern here. Uh, God has been good to this congregation. He's been good to me and my family. And again, it's a joy to come and to bring God's word to you. Uh, let me pray for us with the word of God open. Uh, let's go to him in prayer this morning. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you that you are the one who holds us in your everlasting arms. We can lean upon you and know that you will not fall. You will not lean. Oh, Lord, our God, we come this morning confident that you are the one who causes all things to work together for our good and for your glory. O Lord, we ask that like Jeremiah, we would come this morning seeking to find your word, to eat it, to have it be the joy and the delight of our heart because by your grace, we have been called by your name. So be with us, O Lord, by your spirit. Teach us, may your word be to us, a lamp for our feet, a light for our path. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now hear God's word. From 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort." Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So I have been a pastor now for 20 years, And over that time, I've had hundreds, if not thousands, of conversations with those who are inside and outside of the church. Unfortunately, I do not have a photographic or a phonographic memory, and so I don't remember the content of many of those conversations. But there is one conversation that sticks out in my mind so clearly because of the raw honesty of what was expressed by the lady to whom I was speaking. She was 85 years old, Something had happened. I think she had just received news from a doctor that was not good. That's the part of the conversation that's foggy. But what she said is crystal clear. She said this to me. What did I ever do to deserve this? What did I ever do to deserve this? That question is a variation on a a, a theme that, that pastors get asked a lot. Why do bad things happen to good people? And of course, the answer is that bad things do not happen to good people, because there are no good people. Bad things always happen to bad people, because all of us are evil. What did you do to deserve this? Everything. even your good deeds, are unrighteous, are filthy rags in the sight of God. Yes, it may not be that what you are suffering is sort of a one-to-one correspondence with your sorrow. You're, You're suffering this particular sorrow because of your particular sin. But what we suffer is because of Adam's rebellion in the Garden of Eden. It's because of our own sinfulness, of our sinful thoughts and deeds and words. Because of what we have done, we deserve far more than we actually get. Remember the words of Jeremiah in Lamentations 3, verse 39, why should any man offer complaint in view of his sins? And so the real mystery isn't why bad things happen to good people, it's why good things happen to bad people. But keeping Jeremiah's question in mind, it is not inappropriate to seek to find an answer to that question why, when we ask it in this way. Why Do bad things happen to God's people? You see, as we read the scriptures, we see the people of God wrestling with that question throughout the Bible. Here are a few examples. Psalm 10, verse 1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Or Jeremiah in Lamentations, chapter 5, verse 20. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us so long? Or Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13. Why are you silent, Lord, when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? So you hear the people of God asking the question why, and it's it's not wrong for them to do so. All of you at one point have or will wonder why the sovereign God who works all things after the counsel of his will, who decrees and declares the end from the beginning, why has he ordained suffering? Why has he ordained pain to be my lot? Pastors aren't God. We don't know the exact answer to that question. But we do know that in the pages of the Bible, God does give answers to that question. You heard a couple of them a couple of weeks ago when uh, Pastor Charlie Wingard preached from Romans chapter 5. This morning, what I want us to do is to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11 And I want us to consider three more answers that the Apostle Paul gives us. And if these were the only answers that he gave us to that question, why do bad things happen to God's people? If these were all the answers we had, they would be sufficient. First, why do bad things happen to God's people? God ordains our affliction for the sake of the people around us. God ordains our affliction for the sake of the people around us. Here Paul begins his second letter to the Corinthians by telling them about all the afflictions and sufferings that he and his co-workers had experienced in Asia, not the Asia that we think of, China, Japan, Korea, but Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, especially the coastal city of Ephesus where Paul had been ministering when he wrote first in 2 Corinthians. Now, we don't know exactly The situation to which Paul is referring, but from chapters 11 and 12, we we read that Paul's apostolic sufferings were intense, right? There were imprisonments and beatings. There were lashings and stonings and shipwrecks. There was hunger and thirst and danger and hardship and distress, persecutions and insults. Whatever Paul's speaking of here, you see there in verse 8 that, that Paul can say we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, Paul says. In this external affliction, Paul is staring death in the face and it's creating this internal anguish of heart, even despair. But notice what Paul says in verses three to seven. In the midst of this affliction, Paul praises the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as the Father of mercies, as the God of all comfort, the one who had comforted them in all of their affliction. And why has he done this? Well, not just so that Paul would be comforted, but, he writes, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Think about this. Without the suffering... Paul would not have experienced the comfort of God. And without experiencing God's comfort, Paul would not have been able to comfort others with that comfort. But Paul had known affliction, and he had known comfort. And so he was in just the right place, in just the right posture to be able to comfort others. And so we can write in verses 6 and 7, if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, he says, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. The point is this, your affliction coupled with God's comfort to you in the midst of that affliction it's actually a nursery. It's a, it's a greenhouse. It's growing you. It's preparing you to comfort others, to give to others what you have received in a way that you could not have done if you had not gone through that affliction. God afflicts you in order that he might comfort you, in order that you might comfort others. The, the, the more we suffer, the more sympathetic and compassionate we become, our eyes are open to the suffering of others. And we are made a more merciful, a more compassionate person. We are able more and more to sympathize with them and their weaknesses. We, we now know what it's like to walk through sorrow or anguish or affliction or pain or, or despair or fear. And so we're able to bring that same comfort to others. Do you believe this? Of course, in the midst of our affliction, it is hard to believe this. It's hard to believe that that God is using our affliction for the sake of the people around us. And yet Paul is clear that is the case. And we see it, don't we, throughout the pages of the Bible. Naomi, the famine she experienced, losing her husband, losing her sons. One of the reasons why is for the sake of Ruth being brought into the kingdom of God. Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. Being falsely accused of sexual morality, being forgotten in the jail, why? What the brothers meant for good, the evil, God meant for good, what? To bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. Or think of Peter, when Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you as wheat. And Jesus doesn't say, but we didn't let him. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you. And when you turn, strengthen the brothers. You're going to be tempted. You're going to succumb to temptation. But through that affliction, through that trial, through the comfort that you received as a result of going through that experience, you are going to be able to comfort and to strengthen others. I think to my own life, and and the one thing that has stuck out now for some 30 years or more is going through my own parents' divorce. And, And I look back on that experience and see all the ways that God has comforted me to make me a comfort to others through that. What is it for you? Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's a health scare, both of either of you or of someone that you love. Perhaps it is watching a child turn away from the Lord. Perhaps it is going through a financial downturn or, or losing a job. Perhaps it is falling into a grievous sin. Why has God allowed this? Why has God ordained this? Paul is saying one reason is for the sake of the people around you, your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, that you might be an instrument of God's comfort, of God's compassion, even an instrument of their salvation in the midst of their affliction. So that's the first reason that Paul gives us. The second is this: God ordains affliction to break your grip on false trust, to break your grip. On false trust. You see it there in verse 9. Paul says that he was utterly burdened beyond his strength and despaired of life itself. And he writes that this happened to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. See, Paul's suffering wasn't just for the sake of other people. It was for the sake of his own sanctification. God wanted to break Paul's grip on this false trust of self-reliance. He wanted to cause Paul to be God-reliant, to put his heart's trust in the only true refuge. And the tool for this heart surgery was the scalpel of affliction. What is it that you trust in, that you hope in, that you look to for strength and provision, the thing that you cannot live without the the thing that you think you have to have if you lose this, perhaps life is not even worth living. Often it's a good thing. It's not necessarily a wicked thing. Perhaps it's your intellect. Perhaps it's your physical ability. Perhaps it's your mental or intellectual gifts. Perhaps it is your wealth, the resources that God has blessed you with. Maybe it's the relationship that he has blessed you with. Whatever it is, God knows that, that these things are prone to, to ultimately vie for supremacy with him. And the only way to break our grip of false trust is through the crucible of affliction. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, puts it like this. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. Pain is the megaphone of God to rouse a deaf world. In the light of what Paul says here, we might say pain is God's megaphone to rouse us from our self-reliance and to make us to take refuge in Him alone. And we know this, don't we? Things are going all along just great. We're going about life. everything's going well. And we realize though, we're not spending as much time in the word, not spending as much time in prayer. We're leaning on ourselves. We're trusting in our own abilities. Whatever other false trust has captured your heart, we think we can manage just fine on our own. What does God do? As we lean on our crutch, he knocks one crutch away. He knocks the other crutch away. All of a sudden, we're splayed out on the ground, desperately in need, realizing finally how weak we are. God is pulling one finger, then another, then another, off of our grasp of these false trusts so that we might put our refuge in him and in him alone. You've perhaps heard people say, or maybe you've said it yourself, God will never give you more than you can bear. Now when people say that, they probably are thinking of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 when, when Paul says that God will not tempt us beyond our ability, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. But notice what Paul says. Yes, that is true about temptation. But notice what Paul says here in this passage, how he describes his afflictions. He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. We were utterly burdened beyond our strength. He's saying God gives us more suffering than we can bear in and of ourselves. Why? So that we will stop depending on our own strength. And we will depend upon him. We will rely upon him and him alone. This is what God was doing in Paul's affliction. This is what Paul learned, isn't it, through his thorn in the flesh that we read about later in this book that God's grace was sufficient for him. God's power was perfected in Paul's weakness. And so this morning, if you are walking through some deep affliction, some deep trial, I encourage you to examine your heart. Notice if there is something within you that you are leaning on, that you are relying on, instead of the Lord your God. Is it yourself? Is it some other created thing other than the Creator? It is more than possible that God is violently, but lovingly weaning your hearts off of that thing so that you might take refuge in Him and in Him alone. So we've seen that that afflictions come for the sake of the people around us. They, they, They come to break our grip on false trust. But finally, I want you to see in this text that God ordains afflictions for His own glory. Paul speaks to this in verses 10 and 11. He tells them how God has delivered them from the deadly peril and how Paul's hope is now confidently in the Lord for future deliverance. But now look at verse 11. He says, You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Now do the math here. Paul is saying that that through his affliction, through his deliverance, brought about through prayer, God is being thanked. God is receiving the glory. Paul is saying, as you pray for us, and as we are delivered from this trial and affliction, then thanks will abound to God because of what he has done. And in some ways, isn't this the only reason we should need? That if, if, if nothing else but that God receives glory, in our affliction. It is sufficient. And here's the thing, you may never be able to figure out why God has led you through this affliction, this trial. You've heard the saying that, that God's providences are best read backward, right? When we have the perspective and the vantage point from which to, to look at our trials from a distance and to turn around and say, okay, so that's what God was doing. But sometimes, and maybe you've experienced this, sometimes, even backward, you're, you're still puzzled. You're still confused. You still don't understand, why did God do that? Why was that the, the path that God led me through? I've always loved the illustration of the tapestry, right? That, that, that God is, is, is orchestrating our life and weaving our life together. And it's like a tapestry in which all we see is sort of the underneath side of that tapestry right? All the, the, the strings and all the knots and everything looks like a jumbled mess. We don't see the, the beauty on the other side that God is, is weaving together. Sometimes, yes, God allows us to catch a glimpse of, of that beauty and of, of the work that he is, is engaged in, but most of the time our experience is Psalm 77 verse 19, which says this, your way was in the sea. Your path in the mighty waters and your footprints may not be known. We don't see what God is doing. But even if all you feel that you do see is that mangled underneath of the tapestry, you can know, says Paul, that God is doing what he is doing for his name's sake. He is doing what he is doing so that he might receive the glory. And since he is the only one in the whole universe who's worthy of glory and thanks and praise, if what I am going through is going to bring him more of that, that it is enough. Even in the midst of sorrow, I will rejoice that God's name is being glorified. And isn't Paul even doing that right now? He's like Job, who said, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Paul's doing that here. Blessed be the The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, he's praising the Lord. He's declaring that God is the object of his hope, that God is the one who raises the dead, God is the deliverer, God is the one worthy of all of our worship, even in affliction. Do you see the the directions that God is is working and wants you to look in the midst of your affliction? He wants you to look around. He's ordained your affliction for the sake of the people around you. He wants you to look within. He's ordained your affliction to break your grip on false trust. And he wants you to look up. He's ordained your affliction for his sake, for his glory. It's just a few of the things that God is up to in your trials. And if these three reasons are true, and I want to suggest that they are, based upon the word of God, let me give you a few practical things that you can do in response this morning. The first is this. Remember this sermon. Remember these three points. I'll be honest. I'm a preacher. I don't remember what I preached last week, right? I've preached a lot of sermons. I don't remember the content of all my sermons. Brothers and sisters, remember this sermon. Remember this passage. Come back to this passage again and again and again. When you are downcast and depressed, when you are Anxious and afraid when you are hurting and in pain, remember 2nd Corinthians chapter 1 1 through 11. Secondly, I would encourage you to patiently endure your trials while they last. Did you see that in, in verse 6? Paul says that we experience comfort as we patiently endure suffering. Anyone who's ever been to a, a physical therapist knows. There, there is no comfort except through the pathway of pain. Acts 14, verse 22, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven, Paul says. And so we entrust ourselves to our faithful creator in doing what is right. We rejoice in our suffering. We endure with an unshakable hope. Third, though, I would encourage you to Pray. Pray for the Lord to deliver you out of affliction and to comfort you in the midst of it. To say that we must patiently endure doesn't mean that it's unspiritual to pray for deliverance. Even here, Paul is praying and he's asking the Corinthians to pray for him. Just because the sovereign God delights to work through the means of prayer to accomplish his will for that very reason, Paul is saying, pray. Pray. In the midst of affliction, he doesn't say, Look, our hope is in God, so you don't have to pray for us. He says, No, our hope is in God, and we are desperately in need of your prayers. Prayer is not a denial of trust, not a denial of hope, but it is the supreme manifestation of our hope in God. And it is the opportunity for you to thank the Lord even in the midst of affliction. Fourth, I would encourage you, in light of what you've seen from the text this day, be on the lookout for people who are suffering. If God is indeed bringing you through the waters of affliction in order that you might be a blessing to others, that you might comfort other people with the comfort that you've received from the Lord, then every trial is an opportunity to ask, Lord, who are you going to use me to minister to, to bless, to encourage, to comfort? Take your eyes off of yourself. And be on the lookout for those who are suffering. Finally, fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes on your Savior. Do not miss, this is really a sermon for another day, but do not miss that Paul in verse 5 calls his afflictions sharing in Christ's sufferings. The Holy Spirit is conforming us to the likeness of a suffering Savior. A man of sorrows who learned obedience through the things that he suffered, the author to Hebrews says. And Jesus calls us to suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. It's because Jesus suffered when he was tempted that he is able to come to our aid as a sympathetic high priest. Bringing to us the comfort and the encouragement and the strength that he himself received from his Holy Father. And it's because Jesus Christ has suffered, has suffered the wrath of God as our substitute on the cross, that we are confident that our afflictions, our suffering, is not God punishing us. Hear this. Your trials are not an expression of the wrath of God, but of the love of God both to you, to the people around you, and to his own glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says that when we are judged, we are not condemned along with the world, but we are disciplined by the hand of a loving, heavenly Father. And this helps us to see that there's a deeper problem with that question that I started with, isn't there? The, the problem with the question, what did I ever do to deserve this? Yes, it, it, it shows that we don't understand how great our sin is. But it also shows that we don't understand how great the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Because when we fix our eyes on a suffering Savior, we are reminded that in our suffering we are not getting what we deserve. Because Jesus got what we deserve. Jesus is the one who has taken away all of our condemnation, all of God's wrath, so that in our affliction, we are suffering the the loving discipline of a heavenly Father who will never let us go. (laughs) But we know, don't we, sound travels slower than light. We can see those words on a page. We, We can see our suffering much more quickly than we can hear the truth of these words in our heart. Some of you perhaps may know that the end of the War of 1812 ended sort of in a strange way. Andrew Jackson fought the battle and won the Battle of New Orleans on on January the 8th, 1815. But the formal ending of the War of 1812 happened in December of 1814, when the Treaty of Ghent was signed communication was so slow that it had not made its way back to America. And so the battle of New Orleans was fought between the British, between the Americans. They thought they were still at war. Isn't that so often the way it is with us? In our affliction, in our suffering, we think that God is still angry at us. We think that we are still at war with him. But if we are believing in Jesus Christ, if we are trusting in Jesus Christ, God is no longer angry with us. And so we fix our eyes on Christ. Isn't that the reason why we come to the Lord's table time and time again? To remember the gospel. To believe again that Jesus has taken all the wrath that we deserved. So that now our suffering is God's loving hand of discipline. Making us more like his son. Brothers and sisters, fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross for you and for your salvation. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we thank you that you have set forth these glorious truths in your word. Lord, I don't know what everyone in this room is walking through, but you do. And so I pray that you would give them grace to believe your word, to trust in the Gospel, to know, Lord Jesus, that You have taken away all the wrath of God on their behalf as they put their trust in You. Lord, help them in light of the glorious Gospel, in light of the truth of Your Word. Help them to walk by faith and not by sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.